Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want you to go, if you haven't turned yet, to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, if you're not there, and you say, Craig, where is the book of Numbers? Anytime you do anything and preach anything left of Psalms, you're pretty rowdy, okay? That's just the reality. So when you try to take on anything left of Psalms, it's a rowdy day, I understand. And so we're going to look at a passage that's very, very unique and very, very quaint, uh, very, very unique passage in the Old Testament. And uh, we're in this series called Feel Free. Everybody say, Feel Free. The, the byline for this series is understanding and expressing our God-given emotions. And the idea behind the series is that our emotions often function like a smoke from a fire. If you follow the smoke or the trail of smoke in a house, you would follow the trail of the smoke to figure out what's going on in your house. Like, where is the fire coming from? Well, in much the same way, you can follow the trail of your emotions in your life to figure out what's on fire in your heart. As you pay attention to the emotions that you're experiencing, they will become, if you will, trails that lead you to the dysfunction that is empowering that emotion, that negative emotion, or maybe that positive emotion. Maybe, let me change the analogy a minute. Each of these emotions that we were talking about, Pastor Chad talked about the in-between last week, um, should the Lord lead the way I feel now, I'm going to talk about anger next time, next time that I preach. If you, if you really communicate and begin to look at these emotions, they function like what we would call warning signs or warning lights on the dashboard of our hearts indicating what's going on in the engine of our souls. The key is figuring out what that warning light points to. We've got to figure out what it's actually describing for us. Now, in the room today, have you ever been driving and the little check engine light came on in your car? Just show of hands, right? You've seen the check engine light. All right. I think that's all of us. The problem is that's it, right? That's all it says. You know, it just says check engine light. I mean, what am I supposed to make of that? I'm not King Smith. I'm not Henry Sarti. How in the world do I, what, what do I do with this, right? It says check in, check engine. So if you're like me, the first time that ever happened in my car, I dutifully complied. So I pulled over, I opened the hood and I was like, man, that's a big engine. You know, that looks like everything's there, you know? Whoa, yeah, that looks like that connects to that, and that looks like that connects to that. And, and so I'm looking, I'm like, that's a lot of stuff in there. But there were no blinking lights under the hood. There was no little flag that stuck up and said, it's me, it's me, it's me. Change me, you know, do something with me. Nothing to tell me other than the dashboard what I should be checking. So I start tugging on stuff and tapping on things and get a wrench and act like it's the starter, you know, and, and tap on the starter a little bit. Pretty much the only thing I know how to do reliably is check the windshield wiper fluid so so I get in the back of my car, put some more windshield wiper fluid in it. think that's going to take care of the check engine light. I know how to do that. And so now having completely exhausted my check engine abilities, I get back in the car hoping that I've taken care of what needs to be taken care of. Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us and helps us interpret our soul's indicator lights better than our car's check engine lights. The emotions that we experience as humans become very clear and pointing us in the right direction. And maybe nowhere is that the case as it is with envy. Everybody say envy. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick. Somebody could serve you. If there's Yeah, there's one, maybe two up here. The word envy. Everybody say envy. So as with envy, 
And with it, the other emotions that we've been talking about, the best thing to do with envy is not just to try to get the light to go off, but to try to figure out what's wrong in your heart that's making the light go off. One of my friends told me he literally took a piece of paper and he taped it over the check engine light in his car because he hated seeing the light and he wasn't planning on doing anything about it soon. He didn't have the money to get it checked out. So he just said, you know what? I'm going to cover it up. I would tell you that's probably not very wise. But let's be honest together right now. How many of you right now in your car, you're driving around with the light on right now? All right, good, awesome. All right, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Okay, how many of you, you, that check engine light has been on for more than one week right now? Yes, very good, very good, just confess. How many of you, that check engine light right now has been on more than a month? Yes, there we go, good. Keep them up, no, 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 keep them up. How many of you have been driving right now with that check engine light more than three months? My hand is up. My truck's check engine light's been on since 2008, okay? I'm not kidding, 2008, and it's never had one single problem. Something's wrong with the check engine light, okay? Something's wrong with the check engine light. That is indeed the truth. One of, uh, one of our leaders, I won't tell you his initials, but his name's Chad Craig, said he didn't know what to do when his check engine light came on, so he just traded in his car. You know, he, just, he just traded in his car. Well, unfortunately, you don't have the option to do that with your life. You can't trade in your life. Even though the emotions are there, you can't trade in your life. I want you to think of your envy like a check engine light. And let's look at what that envy points to. Well, the Bible begins to unpack this issue in the heart of envy in a very obscure story in Numbers chapter 11. We're looking at the first 10 verses or so. Let me give you the context of what's happening in the nation of Israel. The children of Israel are about a year out from being delivered from slavery. Remember the ten plagues? God delivered them out of the nation of Egypt, and now they're wandering through the wilderness. God has shown provision time and time again. They're passing through a wilderness during which God leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And every morning, he provides manna for them to eat miraculously on the ground. And there's water flowing from a rock that they have enough drink to take care of their thirst. Now look with me in verse 1 again. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. The verse four, the riffraff among them. I love, I love, I love that this was the technical word that CSB translators, that's why I did the CSB this weekend. The riffraff among them, the actual Hebrew word is aspesfuf. Aspesfuf is like, like an onomatopoeia, right? It sounds like riffraff, aspesfuf, right? This is the Hebrew word, had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics to add, and the olives and the pastries and the scones and the bagels. Man, we lived like kings back in Egypt. We were slaves. How quickly they have forgotten. We live like kings back in Egypt, man, the food that we desire. But now, verse 6, our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at, Moses, but this man of verse 10. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Questions? A couple of questions. First, what is envy? Let me give you a definition. The simplest definition of envy is wanting what you don't have. Wanting what you don't have. Feeling like what you have is not enough, that you deserve more, that indeed you are owed more by God. That you're owed more by God. Envy, see, can start with discontent with what you have, and it turns quickly into resentment towards others who have the thing you want. That's what envy is. 
Not only do you wish that you had what the other person has, but you hate them for having it. You despise them for having the thing that you want. And whereas, I thought about it this week. Maybe this ministers to you the way it ministers to me. We as a church, we believe holistically that we as a church have to be balanced. That means we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We meet people in whatever stage of life they're in. So true Christianity is rejoicing with those who weep, or rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, but envy is the opposite. Envy weeps over those who are rejoicing and rejoices over those who are weeping. So envy is the bipolar opposite of true Christianity. We become envious of the people who are rejoicing and we become weeping over the people who are rejoicing. We, we become people who'd say, you know what, I don't want them to have what I want, so I begin to resent the people who have the things that I want. The Germans have a great word for this. It's one of my favorite German words. It's called schadenfreude. And schadenfreude literally means pain joy. Your pain brings me joy. When you have pain, I'm happy. Whatever difficulties you face brings me great joy. It always reminds me of the story of the fishermen. Fishermen, they tell you that if you put a crab by itself in a bucket, the crab can crawl out of the bucket. But what they do is they get a bucket and they put all kinds of crabs in it and none of them ever climb out because they can't. And it's not because they can't. It's because the moment that one starts to climb out, the other one reaches up with its pinchers and grabs it down and doesn't let it get out of the bucket. That's like a lot of our churches, I think. I don't want you to get out. I don't want you to get out of dysfunction. Some of you know this. You go off from your family for a while. You start getting more healthy. You come back to the family. Now you're no longer the son that you used to be because you're more healthier than what you were. So your family dynamics are messed up. Now everybody's mad at you for getting healthy. Everybody's mad at you for no longer fulfilling the role that you used to fulfill within the family dynamics. I don't want you out if I'm not going to get out. Envy. Envy, you see, like in the story, it thrives off of comparison. Everybody say comparison. It's comparing your situation with someone else's situation. I've heard those comparisons described in three categories. Number one, there is material comparison. Material comparison. You know what? You're on Facebook one day. He posts a picture of his truck, and you used to like the car that you had, but now you're mad. You're mad because you want that truck. Or how about ladies? She posts a picture of the brownies she just made. But you're not really looking at her brownies at all. You're looking beyond her brownies at her kitchen in the background. You're looking at her granite countertops, her perfect little cabinet pull knobs with a little inspirational quote on the chalkboard in the background of her perfect little kitchen. And you think, oh, I hate her brownies. I can't stand those brownies. <laughs> you don't really hate those brownies. You're envious of that kitchen. Or maybe one of your friends posted that perfect family picture from the beach again for the second time this month. You can't afford to go to Lake Lanier, much less Destin, Florida. They've been to the beach three times in the last three weekends. What's the deal? What's going on with that family? Material comparison. Maybe, maybe you're envious of other people's possessions. Or it could be, number two, relational comparison. Relational comparison. You see a post of all your friends, and again, somehow you weren't invited to the church function. How did this happen? How did this happen? You weren't invited. The person was not inviting me to be a part of this church activity. What in the world's going on? Or even worse, have you ever seen yourself cropped out of a photo? Like you're like, that's my shoulder right there. That is my shoulder. Come on, have you ever had this happen before? Like, what's going on with my life right now? That's my shoulder. They cut me out. Or maybe you're not married. It seems like every other person you know is married. And you start to think things like uh, that you don't like them. You don't really like that you think these, but this is what you think. And, and I'm the pastor, so I'll give voice to them. Uh, I'm more attractive than him. 
and he's, and he's already married? Like, look at him. Like, I'm more attractive than her. I mean, look, I'm more attractive than her, and yet how in the world would she already find somebody that she would be married to? And I'm a better person, so why am I? Why are they married and I'm not really married? By the way, can I just say something real quick? There's nothing wrong with grieving that you're not married if you want to be married, but when it turns to envy and you begin to resent the other person for being married and feeling sorry for yourself that you don't, now you've moved into sin. So it's not wrong to grieve if you want to be married, but when you begin to resent others and then begin to, in your own life, feel sorry for yourself, you have become envious. Or you get one of those perfect Christmas cards where the family just looks so perfect and all the kids are holding up cheesy little block letters spelling out their last name and they're, everybody, including the dog, is wearing the same shirt and they're there in front of the green grass. Which How's their green grass in the middle of December? And they're sitting in front of a quaint little barn that their family's never been to ever before, but the photographer told them to meet them at that location, so they're in front of the barn and, and here they are holding their block letters and you're looking looking at this Christmas partner, this Christmas picture, and they all look so perfect, and, and your family doesn't seem like that. If you were going to send out a Christmas card, and it would be an authentic picture of your family, y'all would all be like strangling each other's Adam's apples, you know, ready to kill one another. And you begin to say, well, I wish I had their family. Relational comparison. Or number three, what about circumstantial comparison? What about circumstantial comparison? You just wish you had someone else's situation in life. You just wish, man, I wish my job had that kind of significance. I wish my job would, would give me that kind of freedom. I wish I had that kind of mobility in my job that they have in their job. If I can be honest, can I just tell you sometimes as a pastor, we can feel this circumstantial envy. Because like most of our team members here, we have to work all weekend, right? We're getting ready on the weekends we preach. We're getting ready on Saturdays. We're also getting ready on, you know, preaching on Sundays and ministering to people on Sundays. And so I don't even want to look at social media on the weekend because some of you are just showing pictures like, hey, I'm at the football game. Look, it's family Saturday. It's awesome. Look at us here. We're enjoying the lake, you know, or, or this is great too. Like, hey, I'm at the lake and I'm just like, fine, I'll just serve God here at the church. You know, I'll just do what I, I'm asked called, called to do and you serve the devil out there and the the lake and you serve the devil at your football games but what we'll do is we'll just kind of stay here and we'll just save lost people by ourselves circumstantial comparison i never said envy was rational in fact most envy is never rational or maybe it's more serious maybe you're in here today and you say man i wish i could have a baby and it seems like the 14th gender reveal party of the week for one of your friends. And you want to be happy for your friends. But you can't even have a baby yourself. How could you be happy for somebody who has a baby? Sociologists tend to tell us that envy seems to be a bigger problem for our generation than any generation in American history. And envy is a bigger generational problem in our time because social media seems designed by its designers to play on envy. Social media's design is to play on envy. And here's why. Because when we look at other people's lives on social media, we are seeing a filtered image. When we look at other people's lives on social platforms, we're seeing an image that's filtered. Or as a great friend says, a great preacher here, even in our own uh, uh, community, says we're comparing our behind-the-scenes footage with other people's highlight reels. We're comparing our behind-the-scenes footage with everybody else's highlight reel. So we feel like losers because we see the best of their best and we know the worst of our worst. See, you were feeling great about the flowers and the home-cooked dinner that your husband gave to you on your birthday until you see that one of your girlfriend's husbands bought her a pony and took her backpacking through Europe with the cast of Hamilton. So you, you, all of a sudden, you were good with your cake. You were good with your candles, but no longer you're good with your candles. 
And, and we don't even know if that couple's on the brink of divorce. In fact, that dude may have never done one nice thing other than take her backpathing through Europe one single time. We have no idea what that marriage looks like. I heard about two moms. Can I just be honest? Two moms who confessed to each other in a connect group. They confessed to each other in a connect group how they hated each other on social media because one was a working mom and she was like, I just hated you because you're the perfect pincher stay-at-home mom and you have structured time for your kids. You put 15-minute segments, you put 30-minute segments, 45-minute segments, hour segments, and, and it just made me feel so guilty. And yet the stay-at-home mom said, I hated you because you have a life and you're out in public all the time and you're doing things and I haven't had my hair in anything but a ponytail since 2014 and I've not had an adult conversation since 2012. See, two moms hating each other for a filtered image that only plays on envy, that only plays on me becoming someone different or having something different in my life. And never before in the history of the world could we so accurately measure our popularity before now. Listen, when I was in middle school, high school, you had to like kind of guesstimate your popularity. You know what I'm saying? Like you could get your superlative like most popular within your school class, but you kind of had to randomly guess. Well, now you can measure it. You don't, have to, you don't have to guess popularity in America anymore. I've only got 214 followers, and she's got 442 followers. That means she's twice as popular as me. Twice as popular. I mean, my picture only got 17 likes, and the one before that only got 9 likes, and my record's 33 likes. She posts a picture of her toast with avocado on it in the morning. She gets triple digits. She's a triple dig on the gram. Have you ever seen anything but triple dig on her account? You can't even get double dig. Researchers have demonstrated that the more we compare ourselves to others in social media, the less satisfied we become. I heard about a study done at two college universities where they had students spending a half hour on Facebook, just a half hour. They were on Facebook looking at random people who were in the same stage of life as them. And they began to look through them and surveyed their feelings after one half hour. So one half hour later, they begin to survey their feelings and they found, catch this, that one third of the students, this is the language they used, one third of college students significantly found themselves significantly depressed and many more people feeling more down than usual after just 30 minutes of monitoring what happens on Facebook or Instagram with their friends. So we ought to call it Envygram or in your Facebook. It's envy. Envy surrounds us. And many of us, we don't really realize what type of spiritual problem envy really is. We don't think it's a deadly poison. We just think it's a kind of petty jealousy that just comes from wanting a little more. But the Bible treats it as a far more serious issue. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, he said, never underestimate, the great uh, reformer said, never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. The spiritual power of envy. Look at the verse 6 again. The English translation of verse 6 is a little bit unfortunate. Verse 6 there in Numbers chapter 11, the, the Christian Standard Bible says, Our appetite is gone. Literally, the Hebrew is our souls are dried up. You know what the word soul means in Hebrew? It means life force. So verse 6 is literally our life force is dried up. Comparison and envy will dry up your life force. It dries up your ability to have any kind of life whatsoever. Like Proverbs 14 and 30 says, envy rots even down to the bones. It rots even down to the bones. Envy and comparison rot us down to the bones, destroying our appetites and destroying our ability to enjoy anything. So what happens is when you are envious, like the children of Israel, you start to find fault with everything. You say things like, this man is terrible or it tastes nasty or I don't even think it's good for us or it makes my breath smell bad. 
Think about what the culture of envy in America does and has done to our perception of our own beauty. We live in a culture right now whose preferred marketing strategy is getting you to envy other people's beauty. And the result then, therefore, is that when we look in the mirror, we can't enjoy what we see at all in our own life because we have in our mind what they are eating back in Egypt. We have in our mind what they are experiencing in their own life. So you must never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. Never underestimate how poisonous it is to your soul. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said, God concluded the Ten Commandments with the word, thou shalt not covet. Another word is envy. Because if you keep verse number, or number 10 or commandment number 10, you would keep all the other commandments without effort. The reason you lie, the reason you steal, the reason you commit adultery, and the reason you even kill people is because of envy. If you keep number 10, you keep one through nine. Look at how Jesus' half-brother speaks to this in, in James chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, even you who are super spiritual, even if you know a lot of verses, even if you've been through growth phases, even if you're a connect group leader, even if you have experienced God in ways that are miraculous, he says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, and don't boast and deny the truth, such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Envy is a root sin that gives rise to so many other sins. And it allows us to be controlled by the devil himself when we are envious. Well, this has been encouraging, hasn't it? What a great intro. Well, now it's going to turn. So the next question is, where are the root causes of envy and how can we overcome them? How do we not just trim the fruit, but pull up the root? How do we pull up the root of envy? How do we pull up the root of envy? Number one, we see four root causes of envy in Numbers chapter 11. I'm not making them up. They're right there in the passage that you and I just read. And if you'll recognize them as such, then we can pull these things up by the root. Number one, envy forgets God's goodness poured out in the past. Envy forgets God's goodness poured out in the past. Verse 1 is pretty rich with audacity. Look at it again with me. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. About what? Hardship. They are less than 13 months out from being slaves. They were slaves 13 months ago, and now they're saying insane things like, oh, yeah, but the food was awesome in Egypt. Oh, sure, we ate it in chains. Sure, we were slaves to Pharaoh. But the onions were exquisite, man. The garlic, the onion, the onions, the, the leek, you know, they were amazing. They seemed totally oblivious to where they would have been if God had not, in a sheer act of sheer compassion, intervened in their situation. They had forgotten. Furthermore, they seem oblivious to what that indicates about what God wants to do in their life now. A God who will take care of them in the past, a God who saved them in their past, will surely provide for them in their present. A God who took care of them in Egypt will surely provide for them in the wilderness. See, envy stays unaware of what it actually deserves. And it acts like God actually owes us more than we've received. Envy acts like God owes us more than what we've already received from his hand. Sometimes I would just like to tell us, it's probably pretty helpful for us to stop and think about what we actually deserve. When we're having a bad day, why don't you remind yourself of where you should be? You should be under judgment in hell in a crisis eternity. Instead, today, even on your worst day, you're a child of God with his spirit inside of you and a promised inheritance that can't be taken away. All in all, a pretty good day. All in all, a pretty good day. 
All in all, a day that's somewhat crowned with God's goodness. And then you reflect on the incredible kindness of God in saving you and the assurance that could have come with that, that the God who has delivered us doesn't allow us just to perish in the midst of the journey. Clearly, God had our good in mind. Listen, if you're a Christian, look at me real quick. If you're a Christian, listen, you've got to think about this. At this point in your life, God has more invested in you than you do. Oh, but I spent $100,000 and got in debt and went to college education. I've studied. I've read 250 books on the subject. I'm now a master. Oh, yeah. God looks at you and says, oh, yeah, I spilt my son's blood for you. God has more invested in your life than you have invested in your life. He has more invested in your future than you have invested in your future. And so again, we find ourselves at Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son for us, will he not also give us all things? You know this, you know this dwelling place, but do you believe this? You know this, but do you believe this? The cross proves that Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold from them who are upright. No good thing he will withhold from his children. So he, the Bible tells us that if God died for us while we were yet his enemies, will he not also give us all things when we're his friends? So number one, envy, it's powerful. But envy forgets God's goodness poured out in the past. Number two, envy overlooks God's goodness provided in the present. Envy overlooks God's goodness provided in the present. Where do you see that? Envy cripples your ability to enjoy the good things that God has put in your life now. Things that could bring you a lot of joy. Things that quite honestly designed by God are to bring you a lot of joy. The Israelites said, all we have is this manna. And if that's all that we have, we're gonna shrivel up and die. Moses, we aren't gonna make it out here with manna. Which, by the way, church, was an absolute lie. Do you know why it was an absolute lie? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you know what Moses said? Moses says that during the whole 40 years in the wilderness, by the way, God's intent was not to have 40 years in the wilderness. They had 40 years in the wilderness because they disobeyed God and did not treat God. They treated his promise with contempt and didn't believe him with unbelief. But Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the whole time they were in the wilderness, guess what? Their feet didn't swell. You know what that means? In other words, swelling back then was a sign of malnutrition. So if your feet were swelling, that means you were malnourished, which means, in other words, the manna was enough for them. For 40 years, the manna was enough. Give us this day our daily bread, each and every day. We can't store it up for tomorrow. We've got to come back to Christ again each and every day. Each and every day, he was enough. The manna was enough. Envy always assumes if all I have is what God gives me, if I rely solely on God, then it won't be enough and my soul is going to dry up. Envy always assumes that I need more than God and I need more than what God can give me. I'll miss out. I'll miss out on something somebody else has. And I want to tell you, church, that is a lie. And tragically, it will keep you from enjoying what God has given to you right now for your enjoyment. Envy, or at least a version of it, was a key element at work in the Garden of Eden. God told them they could eat from every, literally every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they think? Oh, I bet God's holding out on us. I bet that's the best one. I bet God, <laughs> you guys don't do this. You don't do this. Is it only preacher boy does this? I bet the one thing that God says I can't have, I bet he's holding out on me. I bet it. I bet that's the good one. I bet that's the one that tastes the best. See, Tim Keller said, envy will make you think something is wrong even in paradise. Even in paradise, envy will make you think something's wrong. 
Envy will make you think you need something else. And what it does is it dries up your soul, taking away even your appetite to enjoy the things that you have right now. I was talking with someone once who had some issues with throat and mouth cancer at the church I served at, and they said one of the worst unexpected things of throat and mouth cancer is that it took my ability to taste. Food no longer tasted good. And he says that's what, that, that was the worst part. He said when you lose your appetite, it destroys almost every other area of your life. See, when food loses its taste, you now have no ability to enjoy what's in your present. That's what envy does. It's a cancer that destroys your ability to enjoy anything, anything that's in your life. For example, envy makes some of you unhappy in your marriage right now. Envy makes some of you unhappy in your job right now. It's why some of you are a generally critical person about everything. It's why you can find a flaw in anything. Anything you look at, you find a flaw. That critical spirit comes from a deep dissatisfaction that arises from envy. That's why you're so pessimistic. That's why you're so antagonistic. That's why you can always see the negative in every situation. It's why some of you are having a midlife crisis when you're only in your early 20s because you think there's so much more. There's always so much more. I'm grasping for so much more. I'm so envious of something else more. It's why lurking in the back of your mind every time you look on Facebook or Instagram as you're always thinking, I think others are enjoying something I'm missing out on. I think that they're enjoying something that I don't have at this season of my life. It's why some of you are so picky and dating. Don't let me step on toes right here. But it's why some of you can never join a church because you're picky, picky, picky because you envy, envy, envy. And you can't find a spouse because you're picky, 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 but really you're envy, envy, envy. It's hard. It's hard to say, Lord, I want to I want you to come take this envy out of my heart, not just to trim the fruit, but to pull up out of the ground this root of envy. Stop ignoring the check engine light. You got a cancer in your soul and it's drying up your life force. You start to feel faint, as the Bible says. Another translation, and whatever you have. And what happens is you feel like life requires more for you to be really healthy. You feel like life requires more of you to be fully alive. The happy life tends to always seem like it's right over there, somehow on the one tree that God has not let you have yet. I call it the gigos syndrome. Grass is greener on the other side. That's my acronym, gigos. The reason often the grass is greener on the other side because they've either watered their grass, so instead of looking at theirs, you can water your own, or maybe their grass is green on the other side because it's on top of a septic tank and there's a lot of poo in their soil, okay? So I don't, I don't know what it is, but the reality is that envy, envy makes us desire things and forget God's goodness in the present. It's a lie, folks. You don't think it's a lie? Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, young men, and come back and tell me if literally being the richest, smartest, and most powerful man in the world and having sex with the most girlfriend leads to happiness. The answer is no! Because that's what Solomon said. No, it doesn't lead to happiness. Number three, envy ignores God's goodness promised for the future. It ignores God's goodness promised for the future. They seem to forget that this whole situation is temporary. God was sending them to a literal promised land. He was taking them to a place flowing with milk and honey, which is our way of saying abundant and blooming onions from Outback and cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory, okay? This is day seven of the fast. I hope some of you hadn't broken it yet because I just really want to throw that in there real quick, okay? The blooming onions and cheesecake. The land flowing with milk and honey. Let me acknowledge just something real quick. There are some good things that you might want that you might miss out on for a few years. And some of you might miss out on your entire life, but I want to tell you those deprivations are temporary. Those deprivations that you feel God is depriving you of is very temporary. Wealth or a strong and beautiful body that some of you want 
or regular vacations to Hawaii. That could be one of those. A great marriage. Maybe it's a great family. It might be one of those. Let me just tell you something of how temporary family really is. Remember the Apostle Paul? What was his great counsel to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29? He looks at the unhappily single people, the people who want to be married, but they're unhappy, and he speaks to them, and he declares something to them in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 of how temporary their situation is. He says, listen, the appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had no wives. Time out. Whoa. Put on the brakes here real quick. That sounds like the favorite verse of people going to Vegas on a weekend. Okay. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let me assure you, that's not what Paul means. Let me tell you what Paul means. Look at the verse, verse 30. He explains himself. He says, for the present form of this world is passing away and along with it, marriage and biological families and cousins and sons are about to be gone. They're about to be gone. Biological families are about to be no more. The time is short. It's just temporary. Your unit, your family, your aunt, your uncle, your dad, your mom. So he's saying, you marriage people, you should reflect on the fact that your marriage is not ultimate. Your marriage is not permanent. And you single people should reflect on the fact that your situation is not permanent either. Both situations, singleness and married life, are light and momentary. And they will soon give, light, give way to what is permanent and ultimate, which is Christ, which is the church, and which is eternity. And he says, on that day, none of us will suffer any lack. Psalm 17 and 15, he said, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I shall what? I shall be satisfied with your likeness. None of us are going to feel like we're missing anything. Can I hear just a good hearty amen? When we see him, we're not going to feel like we're missing anything. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy, which means his joy can't get any stronger. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, which means those pleasures cannot last any longer than what they are in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 2 and 9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those that love him. It literally can't be described. And if somehow I could describe it to you, you wouldn't believe it. It would be like me telling you it's a square circle or a four-sided triangle. It wouldn't compute in your mind. If God showed you what awaits you in Jesus Christ, it would not compute in your own life. It wouldn't make sense. And because of the knowledge of that, because of that that's coming into my life in the future, I can be content with impartial blessings now. I can be content with the impartial blessings that I have right now. And even when there's a bunch more that I don't even have yet, why? Because these things, these ideas, these small blessings, they point to something far greater that I will soon receive in a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Let me give you a quick nerd story. So you, those of you who are nerds like me, you like to read. Any Lord of the Rings fan in here, any J.R. Tolkien, any C.S. Lewis fans, any little Clive Staples Lewis fans, all right. So, interesting story. I don't know if you do this or not. J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, were really, really good friends. In fact, they were, we could say, I would say, the greatest writers of the 20th century in, I would say, the world. Some would fight that and probably say just England. We'll say it in the Western world. I think they were top two writers. And Tolkien led... Lewis to Jesus at Oxford. Most people don't know this. C.S. Lewis was led to the Lord by J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, though, if you didn't know this, became very envious of Lewis. 
Very envious because Lewis was churning out books one after the other. He was an avid writer, an amazing writer. And he would just churn out book after book after book after book. So J.R. Tolkien, he after he already led his friend to Christ, became very envious of him. And they discussed the kind of novels that they wanted to read. And Lewis was churning out all these books and Tolkien was stuck on one book. You'd guess what that book was. It was called Lord of the Rings. Tolkien got stuck on this book and he kept on writing and rewriting chapters and writing and rewriting chapters because nothing was as ever good as he aspired to. He was, he was a perfectionist. And he got so frustrated with his lack of progress. He got so frustrated with writing because he looked at his friend Lewis, who was an avid writer, that he just stopped and got writer's block and and said, you know what, I'm not going to ever come back to the Lord of the Rings together. And he forgot it completely. And then one night, J.R.R. Tolkien was asleep and he had a dream. And when he woke up, he wrote the dream into a story. And that story, after that, he became okay. That story was called Leaf by Niggle. How many how many um, nerds in here, you've read Leaf by Niggle? Anybody other than myself? Okay, no other nerds. Okay, we got one. Very cool. Leaf by Niggle is a story that J.R.R. Tolkien began to write. And you say, Craig, what was that story about? Well, Niggle was an artist that was commissioned by his town to make a mural, but only after years had already passed. He was to make a big mural on a wall. He had already done this and painted for a few years, and at the end of those few years, all he could do was get a a specific leaf figured out, and the leaf was done, and after that, he died. So he was on a train to paradise in this story, Leaf by Niggle. He had this dream. He was on his way to paradise, and there at the end of paradise stood this tree that was completely finished. And Tolkien said, I woke up from that dream and realized that was a picture of my life. He said, only us and all of us, I should say, in this world only get a little taste, a little bit of the world to come. But he said, all of us at the future, some of us get more than others. Other of us get less than the other people. But eventually, we're going to get the whole tree. And so finally, coming through this dream, it unlocked him. And he said, sometimes when we feel like all we have is a leaf, we can look towards heaven and remember and remind ourselves that one day we'll have the entire tree. Well, by by the way, the point is that, that the knowledge of what is coming in our life, what is coming in the future, it can help keep us content. Why? Why here in the blessing? Even I don't have the full tree yet, I can be content in the small leaf that I have. Or as Jen Wilkin puts, Jen Wilkin, a great author in today's world, she said, those who know good awaits them in heaven can be content with having little on earth. They can be content with having little. By the way, realizing this is what freed Tolkien from the writer's block. He went on to be free from the pressure of feeling like everything had to be so perfect his appetite came back to right and 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 so to speak and he finished lord of the rings he finished in glorious orcs and all of that in J.R. tolkien's life by the way for all the nerds in the room if lord of the rings was the only leaf right we can't wait to see the whole story and all god's nerds said amen 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 lord of the rings is just the the leaf but the whole tree's coming Lastly, envy doubts God's goodness expressed through his guidance. Envy doubts God's goodness expressed through his guidance. God had a purpose for his people even in the wilderness. It was part of his plan to make them into a special people. He wanted to make them for himself. In the wilderness, he was teaching them things about faith that were far more valuable than garlic and onion and leeks. And his presence was with them every step of the way keeping them from famine and war and diseases of Egypt. God was protecting them the entire time, but envy. Did you know that the Bible tells them they never got sick for 40 years? Have you ever thought about that? 40 years. 40 years. They never got sick. That's God's guidance. That's God's goodness. That is God's goodness. But envy, guess what it did? It kept them from seeing that. 
It kept them from believing that. Instead, they saw themselves as alone and abandoned and deprived and of the really good stuff in life. I don't have the good stuff in life. In 1 Corinthians 10, can I reinterpret this passage for you real quick? Based on the Apostle Paul, I don't want to reinterpret the Apostle Paul does. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul references this story. And he says the root cause of their envy was idolatry. Wait. At first, that's kind of confusing. You say, wait just a minute. Like, idolatry? I don't see any gold little statues they're bowing down to. No, idolatry is when you love and crave something more than you love and crave God. Idolatry is when you think that something beyond God and his plan is more necessary for the good life than God and his plan. When you think it's God plus something else. You see, according to John, John chapter 6, my favorite gospel writer, guess who is the man from heaven? Jesus. He was symbolized in the manna. So when they despised the manna, they were saying Jesus was not enough. And they were despising Jesus and saying Jesus was not enough for their life. What they had always had and what we always have in every situation was ever-present fellowship with Jesus. We right now in our lives have ever-present fellowship with Jesus. That can never be taken from us. Right now we have the assurance of his promises. And that, my friends, is supposed to be enough. If I had to choose between him and garlics and onions, I'd take him. If I had to choose between him and leeks, I'd choose him. Knowing him is the essence of the happy and abundant life. Knowing him, knowing Jesus is what keeps our souls from drying up. Knowing him is eternal life, John 17, 32. Knowing God and the one whom he sent, the true only begotten son of God, the firstborn now among many brethren, knowing Jesus is eternal life. Not mansions and streets of gold and places to stay. It's knowing Jesus. Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, he says that envy arises out of worship. He says, if you want to understand what you worship, follow your envies. If you want to understand your worship, follow your envies. You envy those people who have the thing you most worship. So whoever you're envious of possesses what you're worshiping. Let's play this out. If you love popularity and prestige, you're envious of those who have more friends and influence than you. Totally me in high school. Totally me in high school. If you love thinking of yourself as the perfect mom and the housemaker, if that is where you find your worth and identity, then you envy other mothers who seem to be doing it better. If you worship the idea of being happily married or having a boyfriend or being in love or having a girlfriend, you feel envious of those who have one and you're always on the lookout for those who have relationships that seem better than yours. If you idolize family stability, you want only family stability, you are envious of those who look like they have better family dynamics than you. That's why when I do premarital counseling, it's the first thing we try to always hit up front is we try to figure out if you really love the person that you're engaged to or gonna be engaged to or you just love the idea of love. Because in our day and age, it's normally we love the idea of love. When you love the idea of love, the idea of love will not be the idea of love once love is already in action. And then you won't love the person. You'll love the idea of love and be away from the person. So what is it? it you worship what you worship is the thing that the people you envy possess. That's what you worship. You're following the trail, so to speak to the source of where the envy is coming. If you'll follow the smoke trail of all of your envies down to the fires that you've built on your altars of worship, because that's where the real problem is. It's not just 
the fruit. It's the root of what's happening. And that's the only place to correct the problem. It's like Paul David Tripp said. He said, he said if you worship your way into envy, you got to worship your way out. If you worship your way into it, you got to worship your way out. So, pastor, if I said his name, many of you would know him. Several years ago, he, he pastors a church in Texas. He was pastoring a church, and I've heard him tell this story. He had gotten to a place where he was the up-and-coming quote-unquote pastor, and his church was an up-and-coming church, and he had a lot of envy, a lot of selfish ambition in his heart in the sense of that God had not worked through, and this is not a, a stone or an arrow thrown in anybody. This is the reality of life and reality of ministerial leadership. And he had this envy that they were going to be the greatest church, and so finally they went through a great building campaign and multi-multi-million dollar building campaign, and they got the church built, and he thought that now once they get this place built and great facilities and children's facilities, this place was going to blow up, and they literally were going to be the greatest church there in his town. And he said the exact opposite happened. They moved into a building campaign, and their attendance lagged greatly. It lagged really, really low. It didn't really happen. They got to a place even in their building project after it was built where they couldn't even pay the bills. And so they were not even having money beyond their own overhead to move forward and do ministry. And, and two years later, this church has now not blossomed into what he thought it would blossom. And the church hadn't grown, and the money wasn't great. And he said, I was walking in a pasture by my house one day. He said, I just started walking through the pasture, and he said... He said, I looked up to God and I said, Lord, a pastor from right down the road has had a five affairs on his wife and we know about them. And yet you are blessing his church. His church is exploding with numerical growth. You're blessing it. He said, I know another pastor across the street, another guy who's north of me, pastors a mega church and he was going to jail for embezzlement. He had been embezzled funds within his own church and and yet he was, God seemed to be blessing them greatly. And he said, I looked up to heaven in that pasture and he said, I told God, I said, God, come on, I got my pants on. I'm not sleeping with anybody else's wife. I got my hands out of the offering plate. I'm not embezzling money. You got these guys over here doing all this stuff. Why aren't you blessing me? I think you got your address wrong. I think your blessing address is wrong, God. Why in the world are you doing what you're doing to me? And all of a sudden, he said, this little question came to my mind. And he said he heard Jesus speak to him. And he said, hey, when will I be enough for you? When will I be enough for you? He said, sometimes I think that's when I became a Christian. I'd followed Jesus for 35 years. He said, I felt like I got born again. I just began to weep, he said, and because I realized I hadn't come to the place where Jesus was enough for me. I was miserable because of our attendance the day before on Sunday, but I mean, I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got the Word of God. Why can't I be content? Why is my joy based more on having to grow my church as big as someone else's? Here's the question for you this morning. When is Jesus going to be enough for you? When is he going to be enough for you? When is he going to be enough for me? Come on, Maddie. I love how Paul wrestled with this. In a passage he, we looked at the other day, we looked at it pretty extensively, Philippians 4, 11 through 19. I want to end with it. When we were talking about anxiety, remember I preached a message a few weeks back on anxiety, anxiety being the lie. Philippians 4, 11 through 19, I've learned in whatever situation, I've learned that I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, of facing abundance and of facing need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And jump down to verse 19. And now, he says, I know that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, you keep in mind, church, that Paul wrote that from prison. He's under house arrest where he is under and chained to a Roman guard, chained, his body chained to a Roman guard for 24 hours a day. Put it this way. He's not on a beach drinking one of them drinks with the little umbrellas in it. He is in prison. He is chained. He is in house arrest. He's not living his best life now. He's living his worst life now that he might live his best life later. In fact, nobody in Hebrews 11 was living their best life now. They were living their worst life now. That his life might be manifest. That they know goodness is coming. He says, I still, I've learned to be content with little, with a lot. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contrary to popular opinion, Tim Tebow, this is not supposed to be the athlete's verse. I know you got engaged this week. Praise God to that, to the South African Miss Universe of last year, right? You guys see that? Oh, nobody else keeps up with Tim Tebow. Cool, cool. He did, he did this week. Got engaged. Some of you women, you're dashed. Your envy has been just totally strong this week. Totally magnified, multiplied in millions of different ways. I was wondering last night, I'm like, is she a Christian? She better be a Christian. She better be a spirit-filled Christian. They're changing lives, planting orphanages. But I learned her family came in this week or last week when he when he proposed to her and the, the father led them in this procured blessing. So I thought, okay, cool. Her parents are believers for sure. So I'm good with that, Tim. Get it, boy. Get it. But the reality is the envy. The envy. Paul says it's through him, in him, I can do all things because he's the real manna I need. He's the real manna that I have enough in Jesus. Listen, you ready? This is good enough for you to take to the bank. The secret to contentment is not being thankful for the little you have. The secret to commitment, or commit, I should say contentment, is seeing how much you have really been given by God. That it's not just coming to a place where I, I'm not thankful for the little I have. No, no, no. It's seeing how much I've really been given in Jesus Christ. How rich a treasure, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord that God would open our eyes to see that he is the pearl of great price that, that we can feast on Jesus, the true manna. Knowing him, I promise you, knowing Jesus is what your soul craves. Knowing Jesus and his fullness is what your soul really needs. Would you look up here think about it? On the cross, Jesus lived the opposite of envy. Remember I told you Christianity is weeping with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Envy rejoices with those who weep and it envy those who are rejoicing. It flip-flops it. But on the cross, the cross is the opposite of envy. Rather than being resentful for our joy, rather than being resentful that he had to pay the price for our joy, he was broken over our bondage. The cross is the place, and he gave up his good things so that we could be saved. Has anyone or anything else ever demonstrated that kind of love and commitment to you? Has anybody? No. He's the true man. And your hunger will cease to be overpowering only when you feast on him. Only when you feast on him. In just a moment, the... 
The ushers are going to bring forth communion tables and we're going to feast on the manna. We're going to feast on him. As he said in 1 Corinthians, that we won't disregard him, that God would quickly lead us to repentance and areas of our heart that need to be repentful, where we've envied someone else, where we've envied popularity, whatever it is, fame, finance, notoriety. And you can come before him and feast on Jesus and ask his blood to wash you clean this morning, right here at the beginning of a new year to say, Lord, I don't want this to be a year of envy. I want this to be a year of contentment in you. Contentment. For godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what Paul tells Timothy. In desert war, desert storm, I should say, Saddam Hussein had lit oil well fires through the whole nation of Saudi Arabia. How many of you remember this? When the American forces arrived to try to bring recluse and refuge to the people, precious people of Saudi Arabia, they could not contain the oil well fires by methods that they had normally used, whether that be planes to drop suit anti-flame you know, retardant material on and try to douse them with water. So the American army, the generals got the idea that they were going to start fires in the opposite direction of where the oil well fires were going. Because what happened is they learned if we start a bigger fire than the fire that's already been lit, the bigger fire will come and lick up all the oxygen of the little fire and the little fire and the big fire both will go out. So they began to light these huge fires that swept Saudi Arabia and the larger fire, the larger passion, the larger zeal, the larger love overcame the lesser love. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you will not stop being envious just by trying to stop being envy. You will not become a person who's no longer envious by making the effort to stop being envious. You must let the lesser fire be overwhelmed with the greater fire. You must let the lesser zeal be overpowered and lick the oxygen of the smaller envy. A lesser love must be overcome by a greater love. And that greater love is the love with which Jesus loved us on the cross. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.